Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd, who is an extension veterinarian at the University of Florida. This episode is especially exciting because it captures one aspect of the mission of this podcast, namely to provide resources for veterinary students getting into the field of aquatic medicine. Hi, Ruth. Welcome to Aquadox. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I think it's going to be fun. Oh, it's going to be fun. Absolutely. So I was wondering if you could start off by just giving our listeners a general idea of how you got to where you are today. I'm from California originally, but we moved to Miami while I was still junior high, high school. And I was lucky enough to work at the Miami Seaquarium while I was in high school. And so that was where the aquatic interest started. And I always had an interest in veterinary medicine, but I wanted to do equine. So when I went off to vet school, that was still the plan. But the, the aquatic stuff, it gets in your, kind of in your blood. And when I finished vet school, I was lucky enough to go to Mississippi State University and do some postgraduate work working in the catfish industry, which was fairly new at the time. And I just really liked aquaculture. I found it to be really a lot of fun, not a lot of emergency work, but still very, very challenging. And so I have been mostly doing that, but I've gotten to work with a lot of really interesting animals. And I have been able to do some marine mammal stuff. It's not usually as a clinician, it's more as a support facilitator type of a role. But my primary work is one way or another in aquaculture. I do a lot with uh, Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. One of my newer areas is working on coral restoration and specifically on uh, sea urchins. So it's been kind of a fun trip. You mentioned you work in aquaculture. Can you talk about where your interests lie and what your research is about? As an extension veterinarian, I do a lot of education, both with the public and also with other veterinarians. And so in the aquaculture industry today, one of the challenges is getting veterinarians that have appropriate training onto the farm. And sometimes that's really hard, especially for small farms, because they're not used to paying for professional services. And so that's a barrier for veterinarians because we typically can't afford to work for free. We usually have student loans and you know, expenses if we maintain a practice. And so our time has value. And we would like to educate people to know that our time has value. And so one of the things I've been working on in recent years is trying to really increase the level of training and competence that veterinarians have working in the field. And the challenge is for somebody that's already in practice, they don't have a lot of time to invest in a specialty area that they're not going to be getting a lot of revenue back for. And so we actually have funding from USDA. And we've trained in the last three years, eight veterinary fellows. And these guys are all over the country. And for the most part, it seems to be pretty effective where they're they're increasing the amount of service that they're able to provide to aquaculture industries in their communities and in their states. Gotcha. No, that's really interesting. And previously on the podcast, we spoke with Dr. Stephen Frattini about that idea as well and training veterinarians to be more involved in the aquaculture industry and getting people to realize how critical a veterinarian is in that process. Yeah, well, a good veterinarian should be able to save the company enough money to more than pay for what their services are worth. But trying to get there is challenging because if it's not regulatory, then a lot of times there's not an incentive for the producer or the company to make that investment. And if it is regulatory, then 
sometimes that doesn't work out very well either. So it's a really tough balancing act. But providing people that have really, really good training, they continuously show the private sector that they bring something of value to the table. And when they can do that, then usually it's a big step forward for everybody. So those trainings that you were talking about, are those trainings that are accessible to veterinarians just through CE credit? Are those specific programs? How does that work? Well, the work we've been doing that was USDA funded, we actually did a national search. So we selected eight veterinary fellows from around the country working in different industries. And we provided some training, which is generally available to anybody, but we, you know, essentially we paid for it using the USDA funds. But then we provided some additional training that was specific to meet some of their needs. And then that program is still ongoing. So we're still trying to facilitate partnering these veterinarians with private companies. And as with everything else in life, COVID just really threw a wrench in it (laughs) because nobody can travel and that's a work in progress. We'll just leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally understand. Unless you can do things virtually right now and it's a little different than being hands-on. Yeah. So you mentioned that you are interested in and or study sea urchins. I don't know a thing about sea urchins. They're the coolest animals ever. And I didn't know a thing about them either. (laughs) And somebody sent me an email about sea urchins. And I said, okay, I know nothing about sea urchins. But anyway, we ended up getting a funded project and developed a consortium of about 16 collaborators. And we had a very good time and learned a lot about sea urchins. So the bottom line that I learned about sea urchins is that they are these incredible little superheroes on the reef. And if we're going to restore our reefs, we've got to bring back the sea urchins because the urchins come in and they eat the algae. So in Florida, there's a lot of problems leading to the degradation of coral reefs, overfishing, habitat loss, coastal development, ocean acidification, climate change. You know, there's, there's a lot, but the sea urchin piece is kind of unique. And it turns out way back In the 1980s, there was some sort of an event that was a Caribbean-wide mortality event of one specific species of sea urchin called the long-spine sea urchin, which are those black guys that have the big long spines and they look like sort of little tennis balls, black with porcupine spines. And 98% of them died throughout the entire Caribbean basin over a 13-month period. Oh my goodness. And they've never come back. So there's little pockets of sea urchins around both in the Florida Keys and in other parts of the Caribbean basin. But turned out at the time, nobody really cared because they didn't like them because they're sharp if you step on them. And there's actually in the scientific literature that they're a noxious species. And they were one of the most ubiquitous species on the reef. And nobody really at that time seemed to appreciate how important they were to the ecosystem. That's terrible. So now we know when we're dealing with all these traumas that are degrading our reef systems, that we're probably not going to get the corals back unless we can bring the sea urchins back. Because the sea urchins will go and clean the areas and they prepare the substrate so that when the coral spawns, there actually is an appropriate substrate for, for lack of better terminology, the baby corals to settle and start to grow. So they recycle all the overgrowth back into sand as well as cleaning the algae. And they've actually done experiments, I believe in the University of Puerto Rico, where they've created underwater areas where these guys are protected. And you can actually see it from satellites that the areas where they're protected are so clean that they stand out. I mean, these guys are freaking amazing. 
That's incredible. So we worked with Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, which is our state agency. We had a great collaboration with them and some specialists from other universities. And we developed an entire manual on sea urchin diagnostic protocols. So everything was standardized, as well as tried to figure out what quote unquote normal was for at least the Florida sea urchin, because that hadn't been done. And now there's a group at the Florida Aquarium that's collaborating with University of Florida and they've actually invested in a lab that has special equipment to reproduce these guys. So they've got them where they can spawn, but their planktonic phases can go up to, I think it averages between 30 and 50 days, but they go through this really long development phase and that's really hard to replicate in a laboratory setting. So they're getting some success where they can pull them all the way through to adulthood. So they They've closed the life cycle, but they can't do it routinely with a lot of animals. So that's kind of where we are right now, trying to figure out what's normal in a captive sea urchin and then trying to troubleshoot some of these developmental problems. So it's just been really an interesting area that I never thought I'd work in. Never in a million years. Well, sometimes those are just the best when you don't realize you stumble into something. (laughs) Go off in the wild blue yonder with a sea urchin. So you mentioned your role with UF in the Aquatic Health Program. So can you just give our listeners an overview of what the program is, what your role was? Sure. Yeah. So University of Florida is really fortunate. We received a chunk of money that so far has continued to come every year from the state. And it's specifically for training in the health and care of marine mammals in Florida. So it's mostly manatees, but also, as you know, We've got dolphins here. We have every now and then a great whale of some sort. So what this program does, it's an education and training grant. Part of it supports the state marine mammal biology lab. Every manatee in the state that dies and is recoverable goes to this lab and they do a complete necropsy. And that lab has generated so much information on the manatee. Now, why do the manatees have to go through that lab? Well, I mean, they're protected by the state, and that's how the state has it set up. So I don't know that there's a reason beyond that, but it's turned out to be a real gold mine. And Dr. Martina DeWitt is a veterinarian that runs that lab now, and she's just, you know, shown a great deal of leadership down there. Um, but it, it's always been a very productive lab in terms of science. I think since Dr. DeWitt's been there, there's been a lot more maybe medical emphasis. I think it's been really good. So we partner with that lab through this training grant. So we provide services to support the routine work of that lab, which may be uh, support for histology and processing and certain diagnostic tests that Dr. DeWitt or her staff want to run on animals that come through for routine necropsy. But we also have resources that have supported the development of the online training program, which is available both to veterinary students and veterinarians pretty much anywhere in the world because of Zoom and other things like it. We have a special certificate for our veterinary students where they can, at the end of their sophomore year, elect to apply to the Aquatic Animal Health Program. And if they're accepted, even if a student isn't able to get into the curriculum as a certificate student, we still try to foster elective opportunities and course opportunities to support that student's interest. So with that said, we have a 15 credit hour elective certificate in aquatic animal health. That's a combination of elective academic work. And for some students, they may do a research project and present a paper at a meeting. For some students, it may be externships. 
we try to tailor it to the needs of the students and the interests. And at least the students I work with, the first thing I'm trying to ask them is, where are you trying to go? What is your dream five years from now, 10 years from now? And then we can try to tailor a program that would help them move forward with those goals. So that's one piece of it. We also do post BBM education. So we have a clinical internship program and a clinical residency program. And then there's also some opportunities to support some graduate students. So I think it's just really made a big difference. So for our listeners right now, whether veterinary students or even veterinarians at home right now due to COVID, you mentioned the CE classes. Can they enroll in those as well? There are online courses that you can take either for academic credit or for continuing education credit. Most people take them for academic credit. Those usually have both an undergraduate level and a graduate level enrollment. So undergraduate students from both University of Florida and other institutions can take them and veterinary students can take them and graduate veterinarians can take them. And then I also have a joint appointment in the School of Forest Resources and Conservation where the fisheries and aquatic sciences program is housed. And they also have online training. So they have an online certificate program in aquaculture and fish health, which we actually have had quite a few graduate veterinarians take. It's a series of four classes, two are required, and then they have a suite of courses they can select from for two optional or elective courses. We also get a lot of students taking those courses that are either pre-vet and trying to increase their academic credentials before applying to vet school, or students that have finished their bachelor's, but they're not really sure what they want to do. So they kind of use that as a bridge while they may be getting some work experience. And then also we get working professionals that may work for an agency, but in order to increase their job responsibilities, they need a graduate degree. So they will sometimes also take that program. Wow. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of really great opportunities available for students at UF as well as students not at UF. Yeah, I think so. I I think we've got a lot of stuff and it complements the student needs fairly well. And I don't know about other institutions, but because we have a lot of crossover between the fisheries and aquatic sciences program and the veterinary school, there's a lot of back and forth in terms of educational opportunities and in terms of student activity. And I think that's really healthy. Oh, I would agree. That's amazing. So for our student listeners who might have just piqued up an interest when they just heard about this, do you have any advice Maybe we can break it up between if they're a pre-vet student or a current vet student or, you know, a recent graduate looking at internship or residency, any general advice that you can offer to them? Well, I guess what I try to tell most of my students, and, and I really try to treat my students as if they're my kids, and first keep your eye on the prize. So whatever your goal du jour is, if it's finishing your undergraduate degree or finishing your veterinary degree, Don't lose sight of that. You've got to keep that front and center. And then depending on what you want to do, you know, you you want to create a package that's going to be appealing, whether your next step is an employment opportunity or whether it's applying to an academic program or whatever it might be. But I think you just kind of want to think about how to market yourself and create your entity so that you kind of stand out from the crowd. And so I try to help students do that. And I also help try to help them be really realistic about what they want to do. I have some students that come in and talk to me. We also have a undergraduate marine science program at UF. I think it's our fastest growing undergraduate major. Wow. So I get some of those students that come in that are pre-vet or think they're pre-vet. And sometimes when we talk about, you know, well, what does the vet do versus what do you want to do? 
sometimes they're like, well, maybe I really don't want to be the vet. <laughs> and that's legit because it would be much better to find that out before you start going nuts applying to vet school. And so I, I can think of two students that have diverged. And I think both of them ended up as marine mammal trainers at different facilities. And then we've also had some of those students have gone on into the veterinary program and are enrolled in the certificate program in some cases, in some cases not. So I think there's a lot of confluence here between all of those programs and the faculty work together really closely across programmatic lines. And I think that helps the students. For those that might be interested in applying for the residency program, do you typically suggest that they get years of small animal experience first or try to get some exotics? What's your general advice for that? I am really glad you asked about the residency because I wish more people would, especially early in your career when you've got time to adjust your trajectory. So I think the residency is a huge commitment. And so again, the first question is, what do you want to do with it? Why do you need a residency? Because there's plenty of jobs in aquatic medicine that don't require a residency. But if you want to be a marine mammal vet, it's probably moving forward going to be increasingly expected by employers. So for me, when we're screening applicants for the residency program, some of the things we look at, well, obviously you have to be a doctor of veterinary medicine one way or the other. You want to have ideally some experience either in vet school or around vet school. And if I were designing my perfect candidate, I prefer a candidate that has both marine mammal experience as well as fish experience. I don't want the person that's so marine mammal focused that they really don't care about the other stuff because they're probably not going to be as good as somebody that's a little broader in their interests. Ideally, that candidate is probably going to have as a minimum a year of some kind of small animal internship. Large animal would be fine, but some kind of a medicine-based internship and possibly with an emergency or critical care component, although that's less important. But we get out of veterinary school and we practice. And you need that time to practice in order to get your skills where you don't have to think about things. It's kind of automatic. And you have to have that training before you're ready to enter a residency. Most of our successful candidates are also going to have at least one year working with non-domestic species. It could be a special internship like some of the aquariums or zoos offer. It might be in an exotics practice, but some kind of experience beyond just you know, regular or small animal medicine. And then I think the third piece is that a lot of students probably are less aware of, if you're going to credential for the American College of Zoological Medicine specialty board examination, you have to be published. And if you come into a residency program and you don't have research experience and you've never taken a project through all the way and you've never published, you're at a huge disadvantage. Now, if you've got something that's almost ready to get submitted for publication, you know, that's probably normal. That's probably average. But if, if, if you have no experience in that realm, I'm probably not going to be really excited about trying to get that done because the way our program is structured, we want all that done the first year. So if you come to me with no experience and nothing in the tank, so to speak, to work with, that's a really high bar. And nobody's going to be happy with the way it goes. So I really want a resident that comes in not only with strong clinical training that's going to hold up in all the different situations that person's going to be in, but they have to be strong enough and self-driven enough to be able to take a research project, complete it, and publish it. Well, very good advice, and especially for me as a student, very good to hear this now while I've got the time. 
now's the time to hear it because if you hear it after you've been out of school for a couple of years, it's kind of hard. So listening to it now and finding a professor while you're in school that might be able to help you get some of that research type experience would be really beneficial. And does the program do any clinical services as well? Depends. I try really hard as an extension veterinarian, if the general public calls with a fish problem, I would much rather try to send that case to a local veterinarian. We have a network of veterinarians in Florida that will see fish cases. There's not a lot of them. I mean, I don't think we're really good at finding those individuals. If there are students, then it's usually a little bit easier. So I think that's something we're trying to do better. It's much easier for me to send that case somewhere else. We also have our Zoom Med service, so they can take pet fish. I can do aquaculture, farm calls and that sort of thing. And we have the Tropical Aquaculture Lab, which does some farm calls and some diagnostics, but they don't do anything for the general public. They absolutely draw the line at the pet fish. So we really try to get the pet fish to a private clinic if we can. And then we also have some marine mammal stranding response. Well, it's all good to keep in mind. We spoke with Dr. Jesse Sanders out of California, and she was very much prioritizing that we need more fish veterinarians, specifically pet fish veterinarians across the country. We absolutely do. Again, it's a hard sell. I think one of the problems is we're making progress, but it's really not good progress. I think the average practitioner just doesn't have the skill set that they need to do fish. They're so specialized. And recent graduates, you've got high debt, usually work for somebody else. You know, you've got to produce a certain amount of income to justify your salary. It makes it really hard to see pet fish because pet fish don't bring in a lot of money unless you're somebody that can really focus on that. And then you have to be in a place where you can develop that clientele base. And it's not an easy thing to do. So people that I know that do pet fish or do fish medicine as a full-time endeavor, and there aren't very many, but usually they have a really broad geographic area that they work in. And that can be really challenging as well. So I do think telemedicine is probably working better in fish world than people realize. And I hadn't really called it that, but we did a uh, training and one of, the, one of the students who was a practicing veterinarian said, well, this is telemedicine. I'm like, I didn't really think about that, but yeah, I guess it kind of is. And it works really, really well in some cases where you have some infrastructure set up. So one of the things I do is I work a lot with Bass Pro, Bass Pro Shops. And they have 100 plus stores around the country, all over the country. And in many cases, they just have a single aquarium. Some of the stores have a lot more. And some of the stores have full-time or part-time professional aquarists. But what they have done is developed infrastructure within the corporate structure so that they have very highly skilled aquarists on site that are usually contracted through other companies. And then they have support at their central location in Springfield, Missouri. And then they have a rather large network of veterinary specialists that support them. And so when I talk about telemedicine, I think that's probably the best example I'm aware of, where they have set it up so that they have the support available to what would be a small aquarium that couldn't justify the expense of specialty service, but done it in such a way that it seems to work extremely well. Wow, that's so cool. It is really cool. It's, it's been quite a privilege to see how that's grown and developed, and it works extremely well and the quality of care that the animals get is very very high so it's really neat well and that's the most important part i mean caring for the animals that's why we're here yeah yeah so i 
also saw that you're a children's book author. Oh, the sea turtle book. <laughs> um, I, I would love to take a lot of credit for that, but really my partner in crime on that, who was the uh, instigator of the project and made it happen was Dr. Maya McGuire, who is a Florida secret. She just got a big promotion. I'm very proud of her. She basically is in charge of extension related activity or services for Florida Sea Grant and natural resources from the University of Florida. And she and I have collaborated on a number of different projects. And the sea turtle one is the most recent one. And she's like, the book we need doesn't exist. We're going to have to write it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Write it. But we did. And I found out I don't write well for fifth grade. (laughs) And there's tools online you can use so that you can adjust your language. I had no idea. So I would, you know, write out what I thought was a very carefully constructed paragraph and found out it would be like grade 14. And so, yeah, it was quite a learning experience. Yeah, I guess if you're writing academic papers, it's a little little different writing a book for... Uh... It was really fun, though. It was really fun. I think, I don't know if you've seen it, but I, I'm really proud of the final product, but Maya deserves all the credit for that. It was really cute. We'll have to put the link up for our listeners who are interested in reading the book. Cool. Yeah. If you've got kids, I gave it to the small children that are in my world for Christmas the year it came out. Oh, that's really cute. (laughs) Well, Ruth, I think we're almost out of time. So is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? No, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. And I just would encourage everybody to follow your path and don't be dissuaded. And if somebody tells you you can't do something, just don't listen to them and find somebody else. Sounds like great advice. Michelle, it was nice to talk to you. It was a pleasure talking with you as well. And before we leave you, here's this week's Species Spotlight. Polar bears are classified as vulnerable on the IUCN Red List. They are located solely in the Arctic, and their biggest threat is loss of Arctic sea ice due to climate change. A recent study published in Nature Climate Change claims that unless something changes with respect to greenhouse gas emissions and rising temperatures, all but a few high Arctic subpopulations of polar bears will be gone by the end of this century. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadocs. I'd like to thank Dr. Ruth Francis Floyd for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, Check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.